This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this Latin American edition of the program, the U.S. Secretary of State goes to Colombia and Ecuador. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. Antony Blinken is making a major push for democracy on his first journey to South America as U.S. Secretary of State, visiting two stable democracies, Ecuador and Colombia, at a time of rising violence, authoritarianism, and populism in the region. Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso is said to be seeking generous U.S. cooperation to help it fight corruption and confront threats from transnational drug cartels. Ecuador and Colombia in addition to Latin America as a whole and the United States, are grappling with surges of migrants. The BBC reports that Venezuela's political and economic crises have created an outflow of millions of refugees into Colombia, Ecuador, and nearby nations. Of concern to the United States is the unprecedented surge of Haitian migrants arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. The recent wave had its origins in countries like Chile and Brazil, where declining job opportunities and immigration restrictions prompted some to make their way north in the hope that the United States might be more welcoming. Regarding his visit to Bogota, Secretary of State Blinken said that accountability for human rights abuses committed during Colombia's decades-long conflict and recent anti-government protests are critical to preventing future abuses. The United States and Colombia held high-level talks on Thursday that included a focus on migration policy and upholding democracy. Blinken told reporters that after meeting with Colombian President Ivan Duque, that the two countries would also discuss areas of potential cooperation like cloud computing, health technology, and agriculture. For more on Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to the region and the future of U.S.-Latin American relations, we turn to two regional experts. Eric Farnsworth is vice president of the Council of the Americas and the America Society, and that's an organization which is a leading voice on Western Hemisphere affairs based here in Washington. And Steve Hagee, he's a regional deputy director at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Steve leads USIP's efforts in Colombia in support of the implementation of the peace accord with the FARC rebels the dialogues with the ELN, or National Liberation Army, as well as local peacebuilding and security transformations in municipalities previously under rebel control or influence. And both panelists join me via Microsoft Teams. Well, first to you, Steve Hagee from Bogota. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Carol. And Eric Farnsworth, one of our regulars, always a delight to welcome you. Great to be back with you and your listeners, Carol. Well, Steve, let me begin with you based in Bogota. I'd like to get your reaction to Secretary of State Blinken's visit to the country, to the region. How would you characterize the significance of this high-level trip and how Secretary Blinken has been received by leaders and the population in general? Secretary Blinken's trip to the region beginning in Ecuador uh, earlier this week and then culminating with a couple days in Colombia was meant to be sort of a first foray into a more strategic vision of promotion of democracy, fortifying and solidifying relationships with like-minded governments under the presidency of Guillermo Lasso in Ecuador and President Juan Duque here in Colombia. The agenda obviously dealt with a whole range of issues related to democracy, including the need to address issues of socioeconomic inclusion, social fabric development, civilian security. I think quite notably, the secretary in his speech at the University of San Francisco in Quito on Wednesday 
highlighted a number of issues that related to civilian security development beyond just security assistance and looking at how to develop and engage with communities to make them feel meaningfully involved in the future of their countries and overcoming to a certain extent the sort of kidnapping that they are sent between security forces and criminal gangs. And I think this is something that certainly in post-FARC Accord Colombia, this is a huge challenge of transforming, not just deploying more security forces, but transforming the ways in which they engage with communities to build and earn legitimacy in a way that is responsive to local concerns. And I think obviously that's a deeper part of rethinking U.S. strategy in the region with regards to counter-narcotics, moving beyond just equipping specialized units and thinking through how to build legitimacy and build a sense in which communities feel safer, feel more hopeful around the institutions that they are meant to be protected by. We've seen not only as questioning of democracy in the region, but we've seen a general worrying trend of the questioning of legitimacy of public institutions. Here in Colombia, the police, the judicial system, even political parties themselves really have seen a downward spiral of their trust from the Colombian population in them as institutions. And this is a bigger challenge beyond just public image. It's a way to how to build institutions that can earn and demonstrate added value in the lives of individuals. That's certainly a part of the implementation of the 2016 FARC Accord, but it's a part of the broader struggle with the ongoing armed conflicts here in Colombia, where we still have upwards of 15,000 members of an array of armed actors that still control upwards of a quarter of, of the national territory. So these were things in which the secretary and his engagement with his counterparts in the Colombian government raised about extending state authority to some of these areas and supporting the implementation of that agreement, but also transforming a bit how we think about civilian security and how we think about counter-narcotics and the long commitments that are needed to really break the worrying trends, I should say, in coca crop proliferation. I'd like to turn to Eric Farnsworth now for your take, Eric, on how you read the message that Secretary of State Blinken sent. I was struck by his emphasis on fighting corruption, saying for the first time that that's a core U.S. national security interest, and also touching on some of the same points that Steve Hagee just underscored, trying to attack root causes of some of the violence, etc., maybe less emphasis on security forces. How do you see what his message to the region and how that fits into a changing or shifting U.S. policy toward the region? Well, I'm speaking now as a former uh, White House person and State Department official, and where he traveled to sends its own signal. It matters. He chose Ecuador and Colombia, two close allies of the United States, but more importantly, two countries where democracy actually works, and where, at least in the last elections in Ecuador, there was some real concern about whether or not the system would prevail, and indeed, Guillermo Lasso was elected, and by all accounts, is doing a relatively good job under some pretty difficult conditions in Ecuador. Colombia faces its own elections coming up in May, and for the first time you have a credible candidate from the left who is a viable candidate, and this isn't something that Colombians are necessarily used to seeing, and there are some big decisions that the country will have to make going forward. 
And so to have the U.S. Secretary of State choosing those two countries to go to, as opposed to others that he could have gone to and that are more traditional in terms of the Secretary of State, Mexico, for example, or perhaps Brazil or other countries like that, shows a real desire to develop relations with Colombia and Ecuador in a manner that helps sustain democracy in a region where it is increasingly troubled. And I think Steve hit on some really important points along those lines. So the fact that he's taking the visit in the first place or making the trip, I think, is its own message. But then he went particularly in Colombia to participate in a roundtable discussion or a leaders meeting, if you will, on migration issues. Of course, the migration issues affecting the United States get a huge amount of attention. In fact, we've got historically high apprehensions at our own southwest border that have just been, figures have just been released. But the largest humanitarian crisis in the history of modern Latin America gets almost no attention, at least outside of circles where, you know, Latin American observers typically go. And that's Venezuela. And the Venezuela collapse has caused upwards of almost 20 percent of Venezuela's total population to leave the country where they are now refugees. And many of those folks naturally go to the countries that are their neighbors, primarily Colombia. And so another purpose of Secretary Blinken's travel to Colombia, it has to be said, is to acknowledge the stresses that this migration crisis has been putting on Colombia in the midst of everything else, COVID and peace process implementation and narcotics eradication, etc., but also to highlight the fact that President Duque has provided temporary safe haven in Colombia for up to 10 years of almost 2 million Venezuelan citizens. This is historic, it's meaningful, and it's providing a really important signal to the rest of the world what can be done. But of course, Colombia can't do it by itself. It needs some real support. And having the Secretary of State there, I think, was meaningfully intended to try to offer some of that support. Well, speaking of Venezuela, back to you, Steve Hagee. As Eric Farnsworth said, Colombia has really hosted at least 1.8 million Venezuelan migrants. And it's a very uh, generous thing to do, but it's a uh, very onerous. And the situation doesn't look like it's getting better anytime soon. What do you expect the various countries to come to agreement on vis-a-vis migration, Venezuelan problem, as well as just absorbing all these migrants? It's really destabilized the region. Yes, Carol. I, you know, the, at the top of the agenda for these bilateral engagements with the Colombian government, certainly migration looking at the 1.8 million Venezuelans. In addition to them, former Colombian nationals who had spent decades in Venezuela fleeing Colombia's internal armed conflicts that have returned back to Colombia, putting a stress on the social welfare system and infrastructure across rural Colombia and, and urban centers like here in Bogota certainly has been a main challenge. That is something that in addition to the concerns about Haitian migrants, which you outlined earlier, crossing through the Darien Gap between Colombia and Panama, moving up through Mexico and, and the very concerning images of their treatment at the U.S. border in recent weeks. This is a part of our agenda of looking at co-responsibility and opportunities for partnerships across the region to create host communities where individuals uh, that have fled their countries for different reasons of instability, in the cases of Venezuela and Haiti, for sure, political, economic instability and violence. 
that they can be reintegrated or can be absorbed into communities and populations across the region in a way that does deal with some of the very worrying trends about xenophobia, particularly with regards to Venezuelan migrants. We saw an outbreak, a very violent backlash against Venezuelan migrants in Chile, and we see upticks, cyclical upticks in xenophobic discourse here in Colombia against Venezuelan migrants. And this is something that we're worried about in the lead up to both legislative and presidential elections that Eric mentioned in March and then May of next year. But there's a whole other series of smaller elections that will also take place between now and then in Colombia that are very contentious, where armed actors are very much deeply involved, but where Venezuelan migrants are also going to be caught up in one way or another. There's been a couple cases of the killings of migrants along the border with Venezuela, the Colombian border, in a very grotesque manner in recent weeks. And this is just also brought to light the, I think, a really important positive development, the reopening of the border between Venezuela and Colombia in the recent weeks. President Juan Duque made that decision to open formal border crossings of this 1,400-mile border that we had been for the past three years, closed off the official crossings, and completely open to the hundreds of other informal crossings controlled by a whole plethora of armed and criminal groups that move back and forth between the two countries. And obviously, the lack of diplomatic ties is a broader issue of geopolitics, but there are opportunities for some very practical commercial, public health, and environmental collaborations across the border with local officials in Venezuela, particularly with Venezuela now preparing for local elections. In November 21st of this year, you mentioned the negotiations in Mexico between the Venezuelan opposition and the Venezuelan regime under Nicolas Maduro. Those unfortunately are suspended, but part of that was to galvanize the opposition's participation into those local elections under certain scenarios in which they could take up and win local mayorships, gubernatorial positions, and municipal councils. Uh, and that would offer other opportunities for Colombia and Venezuela to deal with some of these border issues, to deal with migration, and increase the safety for migrants moving back and forth, and ensure that there are proper protections and decrease the profits, essentially, from the massive amount of criminal and armed groups that have benefited from this human exodus that Eric pointed out is, is one of the largest in Western Hemisphere history. So I think there's some positive developments there, both within the context of the U.S. bilateral talks, and hopefully there can be efforts to look at consolidating of a democratic negotiated solution in Venezuela is certainly beneficial to Colombia. And I think the close relationship that the U.S. has with Colombia can also be a way of bringing them to be constructive actors along the lines of the U.S. support for those negotiations in Mexico. We'll take a short break and then I'll get back to Eric Farnsworth for his reaction. But first, you are listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. My guests are Eric Farnsworth, Vice President of the Council of the Americas and the Americas Society here in Washington, and Steve Hagee. He's based in Bogota, Deputy Regional Director at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And we are discussing the significance of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's recent trip to Colombia and Ecuador, as well as crises in Venezuela and Haiti. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal Twitter follower, Rodrigo Unrice from Concepcion City in Chile. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So Eric Farnsworth, I'd like you to pick up where Steve Hagee left off with regard to Venezuela and Colombia, the fact that Colombia has 
taken in so many Venezuelan migrants. And of course, the fact that while migration is certainly normal in human history, there's been a lot of what we call irregular immigration due to conflicts like the one we're seeing in Venezuela. So we know that Nicolas Maduro cut off talks with the Venezuelan opposition coalition led by Juan Guaido following this extradition of a U.S. Colombian businessman accused of money laundering for the Maduro regime. What are the implications of this in terms of bringing greater stability and accountability to Venezuela? It's a huge question. And, you know, I'm struck by the comments of Secretary of State Blinken in Colombia about dealing with root causes of migration. And oftentimes when we hear that, we think in the context of Central America, but true root cause of migration in terms of Venezuela is the fact that you have a regime that is deeply corrupt, that puts its own interests uh, front and center, and frankly, couldn't care less about the interests of its own citizens. And so you have people who are literally starving or have no health care or have no prospects for anything except slow motion deterioration, have seen no alternative except to leave the country. And so the root cause of Venezuela's crisis is Chavismo and the Maduro regime. In order to fully address these issues, you have to have democratic change in Venezuela. It's really that simple. The point that you're making, though, I think is a really important one, and that is that over the years there's been a very fluid migration between both Venezuela and Colombia. Many Colombians have gone to Venezuela. It used to be that Venezuela was the place where people seeking refuge from Colombia would go. And now those patterns have been reversed. And you could say the same thing about other countries in Latin America, too. So this is a very historic in the context of the size, but it's also historic in the context of this is not unknown in terms of people flows across the Western Hemisphere. It's unfortunately something we've seen far too much of. But in the context of the negotiations in Mexico, there are a lot of people that have a lot of cynicism about these negotiations. They believe that the Maduro regime has entered into them as an effort really to try to boost its own legitimacy, but has no real interest in good faith negotiations that will lead to anything except solidifying its own power in Venezuela. And so pulling out of the negotiations in Mexico really has no impact whatsoever if you believe that indeed the negotiations are headed nowhere, as they have been many times that they've tried to enter into them in previous years. The reason why they pulled out, as you said, is because Alex Saab was extradited from Cape Verde to the United States. He's a wanted criminal who has profited handsomely from Venezuela's destruction. He was in charge of the so-called CLAP program, which provided foodstuffs to underprivileged people. That's what the regime would say. But the reality was he provided substandard, overpriced food to people who should have been able to get it on the local economy if the economy of Venezuela was operating as it had been before Hugo Chavez and now Nicolas Maduro. And Alex Saab was the mastermind of that, but he was also somebody who has been very deeply involved in the corruption schemes of the Venezuelan government worldwide. So he happens to know a lot of where the connections are. He knows which countries have been supportive of Venezuela and helped in its destruction. He knows where the corrupt practices and connections are. And so extraditing him to the United States is a very important step. And the reason why the Maduro regime is so afraid of what he might say is because they know he knows what he's talking about and can expose much of their malfeasance if indeed he chooses to talk. But he's not the only one. Hugo Carvajal, 
who is in Spain right now, and the Spanish are looking to extradite him to the United States, also has provided a lot of information to international law authorities and others as well. So you're starting to see some people talk about the real inner workings of the Maduro regime, and I think you're going to start seeing even the people who have given sympathy over the years to the regime recognizing the true DNA of what these folks are. It's not an ideological group trying to improve the lot of the masses. It's a group of people who are using the resources of a very wealthy country, Venezuela, for their own private benefit and causing a deep crisis in their own country. It's a terrible situation. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's the Colombians and the Brazilians and the Guyanese and folks in the Caribbean basin who see the impact in terms of the refugee flows. So it's something I'm sure that Secretary Blinken was discussing in great depth in his meetings. We'll certainly return to Venezuela on another program. But before we close this particular one, let's briefly touch on Haiti. Of course, right now we're seeing that a gang in Haiti is demanding $17 million in ransom after kidnapping members of a U.S. Christian missionary group. Gangs are said to control about 60% of Haiti's neighborhoods, Steve Hagee. Briefly, because Haiti is critical to the United States and is part of the larger Latin American region, and we see a lot of Haitian migrants also fleeing to many parts of Latin America and are now being expelled and then reaching to the U.S.-Mexico border. One, to what do we attribute this type of criminal gang activity on top of natural and political disasters? And secondly, what more can the United States and our Latin American neighbors do to help prevent this and rebuild the country? Well, certainly Haiti did not begin the year in any certain terms of perfect stability, but the assassination of President Jovenel Moise in July of this year at the hands of Colombian mercenaries orchestrated by networks within Haiti and Florida, which haven't been fully investigated yet, certainly led to a period of even heightened instability in the country, exacerbated by a number of natural disasters, including another traumatic and tragic earthquake So the country has been going through a period of even, for Haitian terms, significant instability. And as you pointed out, gangs that have controlled parts of Port-au-Prince have taken over even larger swaths. The credibility of the Haitian police is probably at an all-time low, and which gang leaders have sort of taken over and taken on audacious displays of control and influence and generally govern, for the most part, many neighborhoods and provide, to a certain extent, certain systems that the Haitian government has never been able to provide and even at its best was discredited in its ability to really exercise legitimacy. Now, there's been a broader open debate what should be done now about Haiti in the context of a history of UN missions that have tried to stabilize the country and provide security. There's a lot of reticence amongst Haitians to think about another UN mission. The last mission was ended in 2019. But there are opportunities to think about increased assistance to Haitian security forces and their attempts to build up their own legitimacy and compete really in the market of free actors, providing security and overseeing sort of daily life in Haiti. I think that Caribbean nations have made offers that could be worth exploring considerably, but it is a part of the broader insecurity in the region. Here in Colombia, the fact that Colombian mercenaries are still there has led to engagement between Haitians and Colombians on the judicial front. But it is, Haiti is no longer sort of a separate, isolated outlier in the Americas as the one French-speaking country of the Caribbean. Now it's seen as part of the broader geopolitics of insecurity, of instability. And I think that the region 
think is well-placed to think through creatively lessons from the past and what can be offered to address the really spiraling violence and insecurity that is plaguing the island nation. Eric Farnsworth, I give you the last word on Haiti. Steve, I think, has it exactly right. This is a country that is failing in terms of its institutions. It's failing its people, and it's a real tragedy what's happening. Some of it's not its fault at all, earthquakes and such things, but also the inability to solve the assassination of their leadership and impunity and all kinds of things. But I think the thing we have to remember about Haiti is that it is an incredibly important country in the Caribbean basin. Obviously, the potential is huge, but the tragedy is that with the complete breakdown of authority, even the people who want to help the country, and there are many in the country and they're doing good work, are targets of gang oppression and violence. And it's a real disincentive if you're going to want to help send missions to Haiti and AID directors. If those people start becoming targets of the gangs, it's going to make the work of the international community monumentally more difficult. And at the end of the day, the people who will suffer even more are the Haitians themselves. But the broader issue is that if nonviolent missionaries are being kidnapped in Haiti, nobody is safe. And if nobody is safe, the prospects for the country are really, really bleak. Well, gentlemen, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this particular Latin American edition of the program. I'd like to thank my guests, Eric Farnsworth, Vice President of the Americas Society and Council of the Americas, and Steve Hagee with the U.S. Institute of Peace based in Bogota. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another encounter on The Voice of America.